Good morning. My name is Emily. I'm one of the pastors here at CPC. Um, This summer, uh, the Peacock TV streaming service came out with this TV show, like a little docu-series called Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss. Um, For those of you who don't know, Rain Wilson played the hilarious role of Dwight Schrute on The Office, which after the pandemic, I just learned, became like the most popular sitcom of all time. Um, But in real life, Rain Wilson is really different than his character on The Office. He actually describes himself as a spiritual seeker. And on the show, he is traveling all over the world, to Ghana, to Thailand, to Iceland, uh, on the lookout for what makes for a joyful life. And in an interview about the show, I was really struck by what he said about his own struggles with joy. He said, you know, I'm a successful actor. I've been lauded for many roles and I still struggle. I suffer. And in fact, some of the most unhappy years of my life were at the height of my career success. It wasn't enough. I wanted more. And on the show, a large part of what he uncovers about joy is that it is something connected to a much deeper thing than just the sort of surface circumstantial boxes that we like to check off for ourselves, like good job, good partner, good house, good money, good success. And it's not just Rain Wilson making TV shows about this. Um, This idea that joy is connected to something deeper actually has a ton of traction in our culture right now. Um, All the way from like Marie Kondo helping us clean out our junk in our houses and only keeping what sparks joy, all the way to like major institutions like Harvard and the United Nations spending millions to conduct happiness research, trying to identify what makes for a joyful life. And all that to say, um, as a society, most of us are already bought in to the idea that joy doesn't come from these typical places that we seek it. And yet we are longing to figure out how to get more of it and how to get more of it that will last. And while Rain Wilson and the World Happiness Report do have some helpful insights, uh, for nearly 2,000 years, ever since a choir of angels surprised a group of shepherds tending their flocks by night, Christianity has offered us a rationale for how true and lasting joy is possible, even amidst a world of suffering and struggle even though we live in a world where we quickly find ourselves disillusioned with the unreliability and the impermanence of so, with so many things that ought to make us happy. So to unpack what this joy is like, what it does in us, what it does for us, we're gonna look at the story of some of the very first people that God wanted to tell about the birth of Jesus. So if you would, you can grab a Bible from the pew in front of you or underneath you if you're up front. You can turn to page 1459, 1459. We're in Luke chapter two, verses eight to 15. I'll let you find it. Luke chapter two, verses eight to 15, it goes like this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, do not be afraid. 
I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So, why is the birth of Jesus cause for great joy? The angel choir sings the reason. On earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That word favor is a very important word for Luke. In the original Greek, the word is eudokia. And eudokia means favor, goodwill, pleasure, delight even. Later on in Luke chapter three, when Jesus is baptized, a version of this word shows up when his heavenly father's voice speaks over him. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You have my favor. It shows up again, another version of it, in Luke 12, when Jesus is telling his disciples not to be worried and anxious about their lives. Why? For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It is your father's pleasure to give you his abundance. Jim Singleton is a seminary professor and retired Presbyterian pastor in our eco-denomination. And I heard him say recently that during his 30 years of ministry, the question that he asked people most often when they came to meet with him in his office was, how do you think God feels about you? And he said, do you know what 30 years of Presbyterians have told me more than any other word? The word is disappointed. Disappointed that I haven't measured up, that I haven't done more with my life, that things haven't gone better. Friends, from the, from the mouths of angels all the way to the mouth of Jesus himself, Luke wants us to know that the voice of God spoken over our humanity is not in the end a word of condemnation or disappointment. It is a song of his unquenchable favor, his joy. And that joy of God is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling that he has. It is a joy that takes action. In fact, Luke wants us to know that this favor of God, despite our undeserving, motivates him to create the conditions for our joy, even when we have chosen the opposite. Even though God's first words over his creation were a joyful, oh, it's good, very good. From Adam and Eve all the way down, humanity has rejected this good word of God that he speaks over us, his favor. And we have done so and instead chosen our own self-created versions of joy. The Bible calls this sin. And in an attempt to secure joy for ourselves, by ourselves, apart from God, we actually end up even farther away from it. 
And this leads to all kinds of brokenness in our world, in our souls, in our relationships, in our communities. But even in our brokenness, while we were still sinners, God in his favor, because it pleases him, decides to make a way for our peace. Peace that is not just the absence of conflict, but a peace that is the restoration of everything God loves. And how does he do this? By becoming a baby, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, entering into the fullness of our broken humanity in order to heal it from the inside out, dying on a cross to break the power of sin and being raised to new life as the first sign that God's healing peace is on the move, wrapping itself around this dying and wounded world far as the curse is found as we sing. Because of this peace that God's joy accomplishes for us in Jesus Christ, the scriptures say there will be a day when there is no more weeping, no more death, no more sin, no more war, no more conflict. Like a beautiful sunrise that we can't outrun, Isaiah says gladness and joy will overtake us and sorrow and sighing will flee away. God's joy creates the conditions for our lasting joy in him. And because of this salvation story of what God's joy accomplishes for us from creation to new creation, as Christians, we get to affirm two things about the nature of joy. On the one hand, God's own delight in his creation means that we are free too to take joy in the good things of this life. Good circumstances ought to be celebrated. Good cups of coffee ought to be savored. Majestic mountaintop views, fresh sheets on the bed, the laughter of a loved one, beautiful art, moving music, raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. All of these are good gifts of creation that God desires us to find joy in. And at the same time, as Christians, we believe that we have cause for joy even when our circumstances are miserable and everything has gone wrong. Not a joy that, like Carrie said, denies grief and pain, but a joy that can coexist with it and even sustain us through it because it comes from a connection to the joy giver and his prompt story of promised joy that assures us death and misery don't get the last word. That's the joy that Paul and Silas had whenever they praised God, even though they were stuck in a Roman prison. This is the joy that the apostle James talks about whenever he's encouraging the church to consider it all joy when you face various trials. Because when you believe God is in the business of overcoming sin and death, joy becomes reasonable even in the worst of circumstances. And ultimately, all of those little J joys that we experience in this life are like arrows pointing us to the bedrock, capital J, joy that we find in God. Tish Harrison Warren describes this dual nature of joy like a river that runs across her grandparents' land in central Texas. 
She writes, even in years when drought scorches the land and kills the crops, the river continues to flow. Its source is a deep subterranean aquifer where some 200 springs blast from fissures in the rock deep below the surface. This is my picture of joy, this place of beauty, this steadfast presence. I dip my hand in the rippling water, but what I can touch is only the surface of deep, unfailing currents. God himself, in his joy, is the unfailing current, blasting from deep below. And every little J joy we experience, this side of eternity is like an arrow pointing down saying, dive deeper, dive deeper to the source. So if this is the kind of joy that the angels are singing about, What difference does that make in our here and now? What possibilities does it open up for us? Notice the very first thing the angel says to the shepherds. Don't be afraid. I think if there is anything that God would like to displace with his joy in our lives, it would be fear. So many of us are living our lives with fear in the driver's seat, which really chokes out our possibilities for experiences of joy. Sometimes when fear is in the driver's seat, we plunge ourselves headfirst into consuming pleasure as a way to dull or numb our experiences of pain or difficult emotions or circumstances. We, we numb with alcohol to quiet down the fear of our anxiety. We buy too many things to dull the pain of our loneliness. We overwork and throw ourselves into success at work as a way to dull the pain of difficult relationships at home. We fritter away our time with escapist TV and TikTok videos to dull the boredom and stress of our days. On the surface, it maybe looks like we're seeking joy, but we're actually just really afraid of feeling the pain of our human reality. And the irony is most of our fearful attempts to dull pain through overconsumption actually numb our capacity for joy as well. Other times when fear is in the driver's seat, we're not overdoing it. We just don't do anything. Our lives shrink. We become very small. We live paralyzed, unwilling to take risks, holding back, afraid of failing, afraid of disappointing people, afraid of getting hurt. And rather than take a risk or make the effort, we'll just stay in our little comfort zones. But the thing about comfort zones is is that the longer we stay in them, the smaller and smaller they get. So how would our lives look different if God's joy was in the driver's seat rather than our fear? Paradoxically, God's joy and the future it secures for us means we don't have to be afraid of facing the real pain of our circumstances. It means we can own up to the brokenness in our lives and relationships here and now and trust that God is making a way for our peace. We can feel our unmet longings and know that God has promised to be the one who ultimately satisfies them. We can breathe 
through the uneasiness that comes when we don't fill every single second with a screen. And remember that now, right now, God has announced his favor over us. And perhaps most of all, when God's joy is in the driver's seat, we are set free from the narrow confines of our fearful comfort zones and we are set free for following Jesus into the mission of sharing his joy with others in word and in deed. And this is exactly what happens with the shepherds. The angel comes, brings good news that displaces fear with joy. And then they look at each other and say, oh, let's go. And they go and they find Jesus. And when they find him, Luke says, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. The good news of God's joy moves the shepherds out of their fear and into God's mission for them. When I think about how essential joy is for the mission of God's people, I am reminded of this quote from Gary Haugen, who says, joy is the oxygen of doing hard things. Joy is the oxygen of doing hard things. Gary Haugen is the founder of International Justice Mission, or IJM, as we call it. It's a global anti-trafficking, anti-slavery organization. IJM's one of CPC's global mission partners, and their work often involves going into some of the darkest, most horrific places in our world today, places where women and children are exploited and abused, where the rights of the poor are trampled, and the oxygen of doing that work, Gary Haugen says, is joy. Not righteous indignation, although that would feel valid. Not disappointment, although that would be justifiable. Not even hatred of wickedness, although that feels very biblical and appropriate. It's joy, he says. Joy is the oxygen of doing hard things. Listen, to, to let God's joy displace fear in the driver's seat of your life will mean following him into hard things, whether it is anti-slavery work or supporting refugees or inviting a friend into spiritual conversations or costly generosity or faithfully loving a family member in a hard place. It will mean stepping into places of need and brokenness and darkness. It will mean facing that in yourself and in the world. It will mean learning to tolerate the fear that makes you want to numb it or avoid it. But it will also amplify your experience of joy that you would not have known any other way because you will need it like oxygen to breathe. When God's joy is in the driver's seat, the joy that he sings over us in the angels, the joy that motivates him to make a way for our salvation and the restoration of the world, the joy that comes to us in flashes of created delight, the joy that abides with us on the darkest night. When this joy breaks into our lives, it will loosen the grip of fear and it will move us into mission with Jesus, who, as the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. When you're connected to the joy of Jesus that motivated him to endure the cross for you, 
you are connected to a joy that frees you from every fear and oxygenates your life with his mission. In 1942, in the darkest days of the Second World War, there was a German pastor and Nazi resistor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he wrote a letter to his friends about, of all things, God's joy. He wrote, the joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the agony of the cross. And that is why it is invincible, irrefutable. What matters is this joy has overcome. This Christmas season, whether it is filled for you with delights or it's really hard and filled with difficulty, may you again receive the good news of God's great joy that has overcome and makes our joy possible. Amen.